You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. First Corinthians six, uh, seven, six through seven. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this: I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Uh, we are continuing in a series that we started a couple weeks ago called "Who We Are," as we're looking at different layers of connections, and and we looked at. Uh, God. And last week we looked at the idea of friendships, and you can find all those online. And, and the series, we're looking at some different layers of that. And, and part of why we're explaining this is uh, I want you to know that certain weeks, realistic, you're going to say, man, that has nothing to do with my life. But as we're talking holistically, not everything is about you, not everything's about me. But we want to be trained in different ways of looking at life and seeing how we can walk with people all along the spectrum. Amen? So that's what we're doing here. And today's message is on singlehood. Some of you, I have nothing to do with that. It's okay. We're going to learn some biblical principles so that we can walk together with, uh, with one another. And, and it's funny as we think about one, well, I don't know, funny, but it's interesting that historically when we look at the church, um, there's different expressions of spirituality like convents and, and monasteries and requirements for being in ministry that, that included celibacy. Like traditionally, historically in the church. So in, 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 in the day, back in the day, marriage was often viewed as, as a second best option for those who are really serious about following God. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Like It's like, if you really don't love God, yeah, go get married. Um, it's fascinating, though, how now in our modern church, I would say modern culture, but particularly even in the modern church, though, it almost seems like the opposite. That the goal of life almost seems to be like to get married and to have a family, which are really good things. That, that being single can somehow feel less than. And sadly, it's not even a cultural thing. I think sometimes in church we do that even more, right? Um, like, like being single is somehow a stepping stone until you get to where you really need to be. Um, I, I remember when I was younger, probably closer to some of your age, and I think it was in my 20s, and we had this gathering uh, with three different churches in the area. We got together, and no one realized it at the time, but um, we looked around, kind of the common theme is we were all single. We didn't know that, right? Like, no married people were invited, and we're sitting there, and, and, um, and basically, one of the speakers got up and started talking. He's like, you know what? I know we're here to worship God, but really, this might be a chance that you could find that person too. You might even be sitting next to that person. And maybe I was imagining or maybe I'm paranoia, but I, can, I, I think that the woman next to me kind of did a little jump when they said that. <laughs> but it's, it, you know, it, it's kind of this weird, awkward like place in life sometimes. Because when we look in the Bible, when we look at what it means to follow God, that's just not the picture of the orientation of being God-centered of what singlehood is. That, that in Christ, singlehood is not just a stop until we can get to where we're really supposed to be. Um, and I want to acknowledge that even when we talk about this big theme of singlehood, 
that's like a wide, like, you know, there's no way that encompasses one person. So, so singlehood can mean some people who they feel they have the gift of never being married, of being single. And they're fully, that's, they're good with that. Singlehood for some people means I am ready to get married. I'm just looking for that. And like, you're scanning, right? Like, for some people, a singlehood might be, it's a situation after a life journey. It was something in the past. And now, like, you're at a different place. And that's what singlehood looks like. So, and, and I would include here even, um, say some of you in here, maybe you're like in kind of a dating relationship. You're like, yeah, this is not for me. I would put you in there too. Because when I'm thinking single, I'm thinking those who are not married or maybe not engaged. But even as, as, as a dating, I would kind of put some of the things we talk about here. But wherever we might be on that spectrum, I've noticed that in response to some of these shifts to really kind of like promote marriage, even in the church, I've noticed sometimes there's a response the other way, kind of like, well, boo-hoo marriage, you know, who needs to get married? What's marriage? You know, I'm full of And I want to be mindful that it's important to recognize that marriage has a significant place in, in God's story and for his people. I mean, we look right from the beginning, and a lot of this good material comes from uh, Porterbrook Network, um, just as I've studied this. Adam and Eve, they were given the command to be fruitful and to multiply. And you can read it all around, right in the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. They were given the command to be fruitful and to multiply. Um, being fruitful and multiply, I'm just not that smart, but that kind of happens through having a family. You know, being together. They were meant to procreate. And, and so we see... The marriage and family is a part of it. And then we see in Genesis 12, you skip a little bit. Genesis chapter 12, and we have the verses up here from verses 2 to 3. And this man Abraham, at the time his name is Abram, he receives this word from the Lord. It says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we're actually going to look at this in a, in a few months, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But basically, this is saying God's story of salvation after Adam and Eve just jacked up the whole deal. Sin entered our world. God said, I've got a solution. And it's going to come through the coming of this Messiah, Jesus. One day, he's going to come into the world. It's going to come through this family line, starting with this man, Abraham. Again, it's going to be accomplished through marriage and a family. And it's significant then that that marriage, family, it has a place in God's promise of salvation and that the name will go forth. It's a real way that the story of God moved throughout history. But having said all that, again, we're establishing it's important, it's good. Um, Listen to some of these words from the book of this prophet named Isaiah, starting in chapter 54 in verse 1. It says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who who is married, says the Lord. And then, skipping to verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Bless you. Chapter 54 comes right after chapter 53. Chapter 53 describes in some of the most eloquent language of the scripture, this servant, the servant, and he would be a suffering servant. And it describes how he would be mutilated and beaten. Why? So that through him, salvation would come. 
So he would die and suffer for the punishment of the people's sins. And then Isaiah bursts out with these words about Jesus that we read here in chapter 54. And this was a huge, significant statement he was making. Because he was speaking into a culture that has always valued the family line going forth. That's just a huge thing. So to not be able to have children, to not be married, especially for a woman, was considered great shame. It was considered something to be looked down upon. And what does Isaiah, what does God speak through the, uh, the prophet Isaiah here? He's saying, now the single woman, the barren woman, the widow, they have reason to sing. They can celebrate. He's saying it's not just to be happy by. He says, actually, your offspring will be many. He's saying that God himself will be the husband, taking away the shame that was historically attached and culturally attached to the single woman who did not have offspring because of Jesus. In the same way, look at uh, Isaiah 56. And here, God is addressing eunuchs. And we don't have to go into all the details about a eunuch, but basically a eunuch is someone who's unable to have children, whether because of physical uh, problems or because of former histories of pagan rituals. You know, again, we can use your imagination, right? But that, that's a eunuch. This is what it says in Isaiah 56, addressing in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In a society that said, singles have no children and thus have no future, God says, I will give you a name that will be everlasting. I'm going to give you a reward that is far greater than any son or daughter could provide you. This is like, this is like a revolutionary. Because the coming of Jesus, it, it was revolutionary in a lot of ways. One way was that being part of God's people and, and being part of God's future does not just depend on marriage and children any longer. I mean, we see this early in Jesus' ministry. When, when, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. He starts his ministry. You know, Jesus, for 30 years, he's been doing the good uh, son thing. But then around the age of 30, he got called uh, to formally go into his ministry. He starts preaching and teaching, and he's got crowds around him. And his mama and brothers and others, they're like, yo, what happened? Jesus used to be around. He used to hang. Now he's all off and thinking all high livers. Yo, we need to talk to him. So they're trying to get into a crowd. And they can't even get in because it's busy. So the message goes through the crowd up to, yo, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're looking for you. And what does he say in Mark chapter 3, verses 33, starting verse 30? He says, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus redefines the lines of social status. He even re redefines some of these lines of marriage and a family and what's important Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 22. And some of you, you're going to get a little freaked out this. Matthew 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, this is Jesus, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
and some of you are, are thinking about the implications of that. You mean, you mean I'm not going to have my boo in heaven? <laughs> I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know if we're going to like recognize it or not. But Jesus is saying there will be no marriage in the new creation. I, and I, I, I know love songs, they sing well. They, they get a lot of plays if they talk about, I'll be with you forever and ever. And uh, but marriage is a temporary institution. <laughs> I mean, Jesus America, marriage, as beautiful as it is, it's a temporary thing. It, it's, it's actually a picture that God gives to us to point us to the reality of the deeper relationship, which is in Christ, with God. That, that's a relationship that will last forever. So I, I want you to hear really clearly, the point here is not to diminish marriage. It's not to say, yeah, you see all marriage is... A... No, we talked about the importance of marriage, right? And we see how marriage is its a great picture of God's covenant love, his promised love with his people. And that's why we have marriage ceremonies, right? I love weddings now. I used to not so... I love weddings now because I get to just talk about how much God loves us. And through this bride and groom, we get to see a picture of that. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And that's real. But guys, that's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. And sometimes we think it is, right? We think that's the ultimate form of love. It's not. And the challenge is, we just don't have things that are called single ceremonies, right? It's because all we got are marriage ceremonies. So that's when we talk about it. If we had single ceremonies, maybe we talk about this a little bit more. But um, because if we did do, like, say, a single ceremony, I would emphasize that because of Jesus, singles now also, singlehood now also illustrates very important truths about God's kingdom and, and God's story of redemption. And John Piper, he, he talks about this and, and he talks about some of the ideas of really embracing this. What does this mean revolutionary uh, in, in our thinking? One thing he says that the family of God doesn't grow through just the result of sexual intercourse, but by regeneration. It, it's not just because people are propagating physically, but it's growing because of transformed lives through Christ. He also says that relationships in Christ are more permanent and and thus more precious than even relationships in families because it's eternal. He he also says that marriage is temporary and what it does, it finally gives us and points us to the relationship that we're supposed to be having all along, that of Christ and his church, his bride, that marriage is a picture. And so we're all small physically just tied to these bodies. So we need pictures right now. It's like when, you, when you've got a little two-year-old, you need to give them pictures to be able to understand the story. But one day is coming when we're not going to need a picture because we're going to see face-to-face Jesus himself. At that time, we're not going to need this thing called marriage to show us that relationship because we're going to have it if we're in Christ. That faithfulness to Christ is what defines the value of all life and that all of our earthly relationships get their significance from this ultimate relationship. So uh, I want to affirm, in the New Testament, all of the good reasons for marriage still exist. In the New Testament, all of the wonderful reasons for marriage, they still exist. But now, in Jesus, there are, there are equally good reasons for being single, for the glory of God and for the growth of his kingdom. This was revolutionary. This was truly revolutionary. Paul, he writes about that, right? And, and Jiwan read it for us earlier, starting in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the letter to the church in Corinth, in verse 6, where it says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. He's saying this is not, like, I'm not saying this has to be, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying you can work with this. I wish that all were as I myself am. 
but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What he's basically saying is, you know, you, you do what you need to, but here's what I'm going to say. I, I wish you could be like me because I'm single. That, he, he was a single man. He's saying, I wish you could be like me. And he continues to say that those who aren't married, it's actually good to remain single like he is. And he explains why in starting in verse 32. I, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or uh, betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He's just simply saying it's different once you get married. And not bad. I, I want you to hear this. This is in no way trying to diminish the importance of marriage, right? And some of you who are not married, I hope you don't run into too many married people who are like, man, I remember when my life was free like yours. Oh, man, I remember when I could just go and get like a hamburger in the middle of the night. I mean, I'm just projecting you, right? I, I remember when there weren't like kids, so I could just, oh, you want to go to a movie? Sure, let's go. Um, that's not the point of this. You, you should live in the life that you have and fully honor God and enjoy it. Um, marriage is a gift. And Paul describes that in other places. And it's a really good gift. Let's not diminish one for the other. But what he's saying here, singleness is also a gift. Singleness is also a gift. If you are single, God is offering you a gift. And some of y'all are like, yeah, I, I want to return that gift. <laughs> That's like that, uh, I remember back in our old church, we used to do this white elephant thing where you trade around the presents. There was one present that got brought every year because someone, whoever got it that year, they would bring it back the next year because they didn't want it. It's like sometimes we think about marriage like that. Kind of, oh, no, singleness. I don't, I, don't, I don't want that. But guys, biblically, and I would say re- realistically, our singleness, if we see it as a gift, it's an opportunity to serve God and to delight in God. Maybe another way that I would express it, some other words, maybe I would say it's an invitation to live life fully in the here and now. Whatever the here and now looks like for you. Maybe another way to say it, it's an invitation to be present and to live the life God has given you right now. If that life is marriage, to live that life fully. If it's single, live that life fully. If it's whatever, Live life fully in the moment God has given you right now. I think what that means practically is that for some of us here, maybe, um, maybe you're single and your desire is to be married. And that's not a bad desire. Um, but maybe sing- being single then, it doesn't mean you're living your life in kind of that stage of a not yet quite married person. And like, kind of like marriage purgatory where you're like, oh yeah, I don't know fully where I belong. I really want to get there. So I guess I'll just kind of live my life getting ready for that. Like you've already got the wedding dress set out and you know your venues. And it's like, I'm just kind of waiting it out. I mean, I got to find a guy, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting it out. It, it, it's not meant to be this holding pattern. We're, we're kind of just like circling the airport, <laughs> waiting for it to happen. <laughs> like, I just need my TSA. Come on. Yeah, it, it's not that. Um, and I, I want to say this, though. I don't believe that doesn't mean you don't prepare yourself if you do feel like you want to prepare for marriage. 
So if you, do, if you are single and you do feel like marriage is something maybe God has for you, um, one practical thing, I think it means learning to manage your money as you would if you're a married person. Like, learning to handle some of your habits as if you would be married. Again, not like thinking, well, I'm, I, that's what, but just preparing yourself and, and viewing this time as training. I think that's appropriate. But what I think it's addressing more, it, it's kind of sometimes what I observe in our larger church culture, and I really hope we don't do it at our church, but we probably do. That singlehood is almost like something to be coped with. Almost like we look around and like, oh, oh you poor single, just keep trudging along. He, he's out there. She's there, right here waiting for you. I mean, yeah. I just quote an 80s song. Um, it's okay. <laughs> but almost like single hit is like an illness or like it's a problem. And, and what I want to say is, again, I hope we don't do that, but even if you hear that, whether it's through verbal messages or not, rather grasp the opportunities God gives to you that might be specifically tied to your present status. Live this life now, today, because we don't know what's going to come. Live life today. Ask yourself this question. God, what are you doing with and through my singleness right now? Oriented around who God is. God, why have you given me this gift? And God, I'm still working on viewing it as a gift, but if it's a gift, why have you given that to me? And what am I supposed to do with it? And just, just to be fair, ironically, the same thoughts come to married people. I would say if you're married here, I would say the same exact thing. Just flip it around. That, that for some married people, they're like, man, if I could just be single. I mean, I, I love my If I could just live like a single. And kind of almost like live life as if you don't have kids. If you have kids, like almost like live light your life like you don't have kids. And um, I would say the same thing. Live the life you have now, faithfully, whatever it might be. If you are a dad or a mom with like 13 kids, and I'm using an extreme number because I don't think that's anyone, you're a mom or dad with 13 kids and learn to live with it. <laughs> learn to be thankful. If you're not thankful, let that be the way God softens your heart. <laughs> and say, well, that's what God has given me now, so I'm going to live in it. And, and I think this is why when we come back to singleness, it's important to view singleness or marriage as a gift rather than identity. we got to be really careful. We don't look at our status in, in life that way as kind of like who we are. Because I think for the Christian, we need to hunker down and say, my main identity is as a follower of Jesus Christ. My main identity is as a child of God. Your singleness or your marriage, or whatever it is, that is ultimately not who you are. As much as the messages might tell you that, your singleness is given by God to, to, to serve and to bless others. In the same way, if you are married, guys, it's not just your marriage. I know that's what everyone does, but it's not. It's not just your marriage, but it's a gift given to you so that you can serve your spouse, you can, you can serve your children, you can serve the church. We've got to view these things as a gift, not just who we are. So, for some of you, who singleness might not always, it, it might mean you're not always going to be single. And that's probably the reality for some of us here. While you are single, though, you use this as an opportunity to love God and serve others. Don't just pine for what may come one day, though it might. 
but say, if God has given me this right now, how am I going to use it to honor God and to serve others? And if you do have hopes or beliefs that one day you you think you will be married, I'm just going to practically say sometimes embracing your present status and signalness is going to be one of the best preparations for marriage. Because if you learn to serve, if you're loving God and loving others, you are preparing yourself for this relationship called marriage because it's going to require all of those things as well. So I want to bring this into kind of the community here as we talk about who we are, connections. Here is where I believe living these things out has to be a family matter. Just like we talked with the children, living in our marriage, living in our singleness, it has to be a family matter. And, And this is kind of in the Western church, we're really prone to individualism, even when it comes to Jesus, right? We use language like your personal relationship with Jesus, which is not really found in the Bible anywhere, but it's a, it's a good phrase to use. But we make it really about just about you and God. And even then, the journey of being single, we somehow make it just about you and God. You work this out. You deal with it. You learn your identity in God and all this stuff. Um, but I don't think that's correct biblically. I, I don't. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the first part of it, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And if you remember the context of this is marriage, God is speaking about Adam, who was just by himself with all of his little animal friends. And God looked at him and said, Yo, animals are cool, but he needs a helper. He needs a partner. So he says this, It is not good that the man should be alone. So the context is marriage, but I think the general principle goes even wider than just marriage. Because the falsehood that we often propagate, even if it's unknowingly propagating it, is that singleness somehow means being alone. That's not true. Singleness is not meant to be alone. That's just not the way it should be. And I want to promote here, I think the best way to be single is in the context of a healthy church community. The best way to really embrace the gift of singlehood is to live it out in the context of a healthy church community. I mean, Paul's instructions for the church he gives in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, elder women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. He is describing here the radical nature of a new community in Christ. He's saying, all y'all who used to come to me and you go to temple and you do these things and you had your little tribes and your families, yo, now family means all of y'all. Now family means through Christ, our good older brother, we are made into one family here. So it's not just that man or that woman or that younger cat. We're family. So those are younger brothers. That's an older sister. That's a mother. We are family now. It's not just those who you happen to observe religious practices together, but it's family. And it's just as significant as your biological family of origin, and like we saw earlier, more eternal. So I just lovingly saying to you, those, those of you who are here, if you are single, we invite you, invest in this community called the church. Invest in this community we call the church. Live like family. Live like family. Don't isolate yourself. And I think practically, maybe one practical expression, I I suggest if you're single, I don't think you should be living alone. And that's not, hear me, I'm not saying the biblical word of God is you should not live alone if you are, thus saith the Lord, you are in sin. I'm not saying that. There's freedom. But I think wisdom would say, you know what? If I'm on my own, I have a real tendency to kind of make everything about me. And it's actually healthy to be with others, to be reminded it's not all about me. 
It's about others as well and sharing your life together. But I'm not just talking to single folks. Let me, let me talk to the married folks and, and especially those with families for a moment here. Um, resist the worldly orientation to life that tells you it's all about just your family. Resist this worldly orientation to life that says your family is just your family. And let's just be very right. Having a young family, I can speak from experience, it can be challenging to feel like you can be involved in all that much. You're like, really, y'all went to see the new Star Wars movie? Oh, I had kid duty. Oh, wow, you're all going out to serve together on that day? Oh, yeah, I got soccer practice. I mean, all good things, but realistic is some of the things that we say, hey, get involved, be on mission. You're like, I, I, I got to love my kids. I got to love my, my spouse. I got responsibilities, and they're good ones, and we should embrace them. Again, live the life God has given you. So realistically, it's hard to feel like you can be fully involved in maybe everything a church talks about. But one of the most spiritually impactful things that you can do is welcome others into your family. Yeah, maybe you can't go to every event. Maybe you can't go to everything you would like to. Maybe you can't feel like you used to be as involved as maybe you thought was spiritual. But one of the best things you can do is say, you know what, we, we do this thing called dinner every day. Hmm, it's funny how it comes every day, like clockwork. Um, here, there are some people in our church, maybe, maybe, maybe they, they don't have that right now, so why don't we invite them over to dinner? Don't create something new. Don't say, well, let's make second dinner so that we can be missional. No, just eat dinner. Just eat dinner. Do what you would normally do, but invite others in to come observe. And, and not just to see how spiritual you are, because <laughs> I know that's the reality for all of us here, right? How Just to be able to learn and, and from your eminence of like Joe's glowing and how your kids like pray while they're even eating. <laughs> no, to learn that, yeah, we celebrate God and good things as family, but man, heck, sometimes we're really jacked up too. And to learn what it means to love one another when everything's not ideal. And we're throwing food at each other. If you got chores to do around your house, well, I don't say chores because that's not bad, like work to do around your house, building stuff, invite someone to come in with you. Do it together. You might feel like you're being a hindrance. I guarantee you, you're inviting people to say, be part of our family. Walk with us. Learn with us. Get a healthy picture of marriage. Get a healthy picture of family because let's be real, that's not all of us, right? That's not of all of our background. We don't know what healthy marriage or healthy family looks like. Part of growing as a church to say, how can we model that with one another? That's one of the most spiritually impactful things you can do. Welcome others into your family. Guys, one of the best things about having a healthy family is having those who look out for you. Because, you know, family will say things to you that no one else will. I mean, sometimes that's dysfunctional. I mean, I mean let's just be real. Sometimes family will say things to you no one else should because it's just evil and dysfunctional. But I'm talking in a healthy context. It's for your well-being. Like your brother, your mother, they'll say things to you. Like you got a big glob on your face. Nine out of ten people will walk by you and they'll notice it, but they'll be like, well, I don't want to intrude. Your brother will be like, yo, man, you got this big glob on your face. It's nasty. Get it off. Look in the mirror. We need some family relationships that are able to speak gracious truth into one another's lives. And I think particularly when it comes to the issue of singleness in our culture, it's confusing. We have a lot of messages that get spoken to us. 
we in a church, healthy church context, we need to speak into one another. We need to embrace one another. We need to walk with each other. I mean, for example, we would say biblically, I would say the Bible suggests and, and gives pretty clear mandate, if you are a follower of Christ, you should not marry someone who's not a Christian. And that's debated in some circles. I, I would give some biblical warrant why I believe it's not just a biblical obedience thing, but it's actually a well-being thing as well. But that's hard. That's hard when you're in a culture that says, find someone, find someone. And instead of having friends that say, you know what, that's great that you found someone. Yeah, Christian or not, who... You have some people who actually care about your spiritual well-being saying, oh, no, I don't know if that's going to be good for you. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if being in that right now is healthy. It, maybe it means having some people who are going to speak into your life and say, you know what? You're acting like you're married, but you're not married yet. You're physically way too intimate with that person. Don't act like you're married before you're married. Don't let... Love awakened before the time is right. And I'll just be honest, it's hard to do that for yourself. But when you got some good brothers and sisters around you who are walking with you, in love, again, not in judgment, but in love, maybe you'll listen to them or not, but at least you'll have voices to try to guide you along. We need some family relations which, which will speak into those areas. So I, I hope all of this is helpful in some ways. But guys, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Um, I mean, especially if your desire is to be married. Can we just be real about that? I'll, I'll just reveal myself. When I was single, I hated messages like this because it felt like the preacher was saying, oh, yeah, just be content in the holiness of being single and embrace it because you can do so. I used to be like, whatever, man. Where would I drop my offering off and get out of here? I used to hate it. I used to hate it. Because, and I, I would say, getting, wanting to get married is not an imp- necessarily an improper desire but I do want to say, in whatever maybe even hard things that you're feeling even today, right now, um, I want to invite you to ask the question, is God enough for you in your singleness? Is God enough for you in singleness? And this is not just singleness, but any facet of life. Is God enough for you in mere marriage? Is God enough for you in your job? Is God enough for you in whatever? Because I will suggest that if, it's, if God is not enough for you right now in your present life stage, nothing you look to will be enough. It will always leave you with a longing that no earthly thing can probably, possibly fulfill. Because for some who are single, and I've been there, it's tempting to believe that marriage will be the answer to your soul's longing. But it can only point us to the true fulfillment and the joy which is found in Christ. It's what the psalmist sings about in Psalm 73, in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And we know that the psalmist, if you read the verses earlier, was basically talking about how life stinks. How everyone else seems to be doing all the bad stuff. Their life seems to be getting good. Where I'm obeying God and stinks. But he comes back to this conclusion. But who else do I got? Even if everything else falls away, the psalmist knows he has God. I want to be clear. Sometimes messages like this, and we can be guilty in the church, it's like, you know, one day you want to get married, so here are some steps to do, and work on yourself. You know, be the person that you would want to marry, or like little bumper sticker, things like that. I want to be very clear. This is not some kind of formula. This is not some kind of formula. You're single, okay, punch in these 10 different facts, and boom, in six months, you'll find that person. 
It might be you do every single one of those things and nothing happens. (laughs) But maybe God's trying to teach, um, ultimately, your greatest need is me. Even in the angst that you're feeling, it's showing you that you don't still fully know me. Receive me. Walk with me. Let me love you. And God wants to give you the greatest gift, himself. I know that can sound so spiritually trite, but it's true. That sets the course for everything else in our life. Let's bow our heads. And can I ask you to stand with me? As you reflect on this, I'm sure for, for everyone here, it's a, different, it's a different response, right? For some of you, maybe you're single and you're desire and you think, you, you think God's preparing you for marriage and it's just really hard. Let's, can we just be very honest about that? It's hard. Can I invite you to not just make this a spiritually trite thing, but say, God, are you enough for me? God, are you enough for me? And let that lead you to the cross. Maybe for some of you, maybe you're, you're in a family or you're married already. Perhaps God is inviting you to, even asking your marriage, is God enough in this? But also, can, how can we invite others and, and to really make this family in our church and live out and love one another? Maybe for some of us, it's a really hard decision right now. You've got you've to get some work done with God because God's convicting you you're not in a healthy relationship. You love Jesus and the person that you're spending your time with, that you're sharing your life with, some of you sharing your body with, they don't love Jesus. And you gotta, you gotta, maybe you've got to make some decisions there. Is this really honoring God? Is this glorifying God and is this benefiting me? Whatever it is for you, let me invite you to the nature of God being enough. And how does he show us he's enough? By this thing called a cross that Jesus went to and gave himself fully and shows us what relationship looks like in the church, but with one another as well. It reminds us, even if we have nothing, we have God. Even if everyone else forsakes us, God will not. Even if we feel fully alone, God reminds us he is there with us. And we would do that with one another. We have the table here representing the broken body of Jesus and the, share, uh, the, the shed blood representing the cups of Jesus' blood. And I want to invite you, if you're a Christian, to come up during this time of response, receive communion, remember the one who loves you, even if you think no one else does, and meditate on that deeply and have your heart girded in that. Lord, help us as we come to you this morning. Lord, I think these areas, sometimes it just reveals real stuff of our heart. It reveals where we don't fully think you're enough. Thank you for grace that gently brings us to you. Would you remind us even in this time as we meditate upon the Lord's Supper that you tell us over and over again that you're enough. You want to be enough. You give yourself so that you would be enough. So help us to meditate on that. Pray about that. Maybe some of us need to repent, make some hard choices. Lord, but we love you. We thank you for showing us what sacrifice looks like. So let's receive communion, pray, sing, whatever you need to do. Pray with one another if God's leading you to do that. And let's respond to the word.